a to-do list person. Are you like a task list? Yeah? yeah? Like a task list person? Like I need to have my, this is what I'm going to do today. And what happens if I don't get those things done? How do you respond when you don't get your to-do list or task list completed? Frustrated? Irritated? A little weary? A little tiresome? That's not good. That's not a good thing. See, if you remember, we were in Matthew chapter 11. We were speaking about these cities, these three cities that Jesus was casting judgment on if they did not repent. And we spoke about repentance. And then after that, Jesus takes it back to the believer and he talks about how easy repentance really is. He just says, come to me. If you'll pick it back up so we can be reminded in Matthew chapter 11, verse 28, he says, Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, I'm a to-do list person. I'm a task list person. And sometimes I can find that, most of the time actually, I never get it done. I never get it completed. The task list, I, I feel like at the end of the day, there's more to be done than there was when I first started. It's like, what is this? I made this task list so that I could accomplish it. But what's my heart's response to my lack of accomplishing this man-made list that I put in place for me to fulfill. If I'm getting irritated and frustrated, there's something wrong there. I'm not resting in the Lord. I had a man-made law, if you will. Not that this task list isn't a good thing, but if I'm getting frustrated and irritable and the works of the flesh and these nasty characteristics are coming out of me, then I'm not resting in the Lord. I'm consumed by legalism. Jesus says, come to me, all you labor. Find rest in me. And that brings me to the title of this message, rest in Christ, not legalism. Rest in Christ, not legalism. Now, task lists aren't a bad thing. I don't want you to leave here and say, I'm never making a task list again. It's not about that. Task lists are good if they're things that you know that you're supposed to be doing or God's asked you to do them. It's what's your response when you don't complete them. If you have a response of irritability, then you're not resting in Christ. If you have a response of, okay, I did what I did, I did what I could, I did the best that I could, and I trust Lord, the Lord to finish the rest. That's okay. That's a good thing. We're going to see here in this text, Jesus strategically goes from speaking of this yoke how his yoke is easy and his burden is light, and he's going to connect this to the Sabbath. See, just as we taught last week, Jesus just finished uh, speaking about repentance, and then he says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. The people that he's speaking to are under the impression, for me to repent, I need to not just repent of one thing, I need to repent and make sure I'm fulfilling all of these 613 laws that have been put in place. I have to do all these different things. Repentance, that sounds like a heavy load. 613 
Put that on your task list. Put that on your to-do list. I have to do all of these things daily. So he says, no, it's not that difficult. My yoke is easy. My burden is light. I came to bear your burden, not to give you a heavier burden. One of those laws that was put in place, we all are familiar with, it was the Sabbath. It was a law. It was a law. It was one of the Ten Commandments to keep the Sabbath. And Jesus is going to give us clarity really in the next two weeks, but this week we're just going to focus on Matthew chapter 12, verse 1 to 8. He's going to give us clarity of God's heart behind the Sabbath. He's going to define the heart of the Sabbath. See, the Sabbath wasn't meant to be a a burden, but a blessing, but the people took it and they made it into this burdensome thing, as we'll discuss as we get into the text. Look what happens here. Matthew chapter 12, verse 1, it says, At that time, Jesus went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples were hungry and began to pluck heads of grain and to eat. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. See, the problem isn't, the Pharisees aren't saying that it's unlawful to eat the grain because that wasn't unlawful. In fact, Um, farmers were supposed to not harvest all their crops. They were supposed to leave some out there so that people that were poor or that were walking by and were hungry and needed food, they could pick off the grain fields uh, and, and have something to eat for that moment. But what the Pharisees are saying here is that this is unlawful because they're considering it as work because what they actually had to do was to pluck and separate the grain. Okay? They had to pluck, separate the grain. They're considering that work. Not only that, they're putting it in the category of harvesting. They're harvesting, but the disciples, they're not harvesting. They're not taking more than what they need. They're simply taking what they need to get through the day. Now we see in Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, just to show this to you in the word, that this was not an unlawful thing to do on the Sabbath based on the law that God instituted. Deuteronomy chapter 23, verse 25, it says, When you come into your neighbor's standing grain, you may pluck the heads with your hand, but you shall not use a sickle on your neighbor's standing grain. What is he saying here? You can eat the grain, just don't harvest the grain. So it was completely legal. But what the Pharisees and the Sadducees had done over time was they created a bunch of to-dos and not-to-dos. See, they created a man-made law. This was the oral law known as the Talmud. Um, For you Bible students, uh, you can look more into this. You have the Talmud in the Mishnah. The Mishnah was basically a categorized um, um, document or book that had all the laws, everything that pertained to the Sabbath, everything that pertained to uh, sacrifices. It's categorized, each and every law, and this is what was um, to be fulfilled to keep that specific law, these 613 laws. And then the Talmud was a combination of the Mishnah and the Gemara, which the Gemara was a commentary. And the commentary was man's interpretation of God's law. Okay, so basically through this, what they did was God said we cannot work on the Sabbath. What does that mean? So this is what they developed. God didn't say this. For example, you weren't allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath. 
You weren't allowed to take a bath on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to walk more than 3,000 feet on the Sabbath. You weren't allowed to spit in the ground on the Sabbath. Because if you spit in the ground and it made a dent big enough, that would imply that maybe you were trying to plant a seed there. Literally. So you weren't allowed to do these things. And it's like, wait a minute, what is that God's heart behind the Sabbath? No, the Pharisees misinterpreted the heart of the Sabbath and the law in general. Which brings me to my first point, and Jesus is going to clarify this. Christ has set us free from the law. Christ has set us free from the law. It's Romans chapter 8, verse 2. Romans chapter 8, verse 2 says, For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. The whole point of the law was to point out, and we've spoken about this before, to point out our sinful nature and the reality that I can't keep a to-do list that's, that's, that's 10 things long, let alone 613, right? We've all said how we fall short of our to-do list, right? 613 laws to keep in a given day. No, can't do it. Definitely not. Can't even keep my own. It was to point to the fact that we couldn't keep this to-do list. We couldn't keep the law. It was to point to our sinful nature that we would realize that we needed a savior. Now, speaking in context, God didn't say that picking grain was unlawful on the Sabbath. The Pharisees did. And what they're saying, as I said before, is the Pharisees are accusing the disciples of harvesting. See, they're putting a greater burden on the people and making up. You can't spit in the ground. You spit in the ground, you're breaking the Sabbath. You're breaking the law. How ridiculous is that? The Sabbath was intended for rest. It's Mark chapter 2, verse 27. He says this. Mark chapter 2, verse 27 says... And he said to them, this is Jesus, and this is the same general story. And he said to them, the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. The man, man wasn't created to um, operate in and fulfill all these man-made laws that pertain to the Sabbath. No, the Sabbath was given to man for a day of rest, Their whole thinking, their whole ideology behind the Sabbath was completely wrong. It goes back to the beginning in creation, right? The creation story. God worked six days. It took him six days to create the heavens and the earth and the animals and the plants and everything that we see today. And then on the seventh day, he did what? He rested. Now, the Sabbath was instituted. Yeah, we see there, but really it was instituted after the Exodus. Why? Because for 430 years, the Israelites were slaves working every single day. Every single day. Now, now I want you to imagine, okay, you're the first Israelites, you're under Pharaoh, you're helping build these great uh, pyramids and all these different things, working every single day. And then God says, hey, we're going to get out of here. One of the first things I'm going to institute in my Ten Commandments, Sabbath. 
day of rest. You get one day to relax and just rest in me. Are you serious? We've been working every single day for 430 years. Grandpa did it. Dad did it. Uncle did it. Aunt did it. They all did it. That's what we've always known. And now we get one day off, not just one day off, one day off a week. This is amazing. This is the greatest thing I ever heard. You think those first Israelites are thinking this is a burden? No, they're stoked about this. This is the greatest commandment. If we keep any other commandment, or if we break all the commandments, we're going to make sure we keep this one. We are going to keep the Sabbath. We love what God's doing here and in instituting this day of rest. See, the Pharisees had a flawed idea and understanding of God's heart. Both behind the Sabbath, again, and in the law in general. The Sabbath and the law were both instituted to reveal God's goodness, not to put a heavier burden on the people. So we know if the law was instituted to reveal God's goodness and we see the fulfillment of the law in Jesus Christ and we know we're no longer under the law but we're under grace, why would we choose to go back to to-do lists? Why would we choose to go back to man-made laws and set ourselves up for these situations where we get irritated and frustrated and act out in our flesh because we can't fulfill this thing? We're going back to the law. It might not be the same as the 613 Levitical laws, but it's our own man-made law. It's what we create for ourselves. And if it's producing bitterness or any um, hard heart or bad characteristic that isn't of the fruit of the Spirit, then it's wrong. Something needs to change. Paul says it like this in Galatians chapter 5. If you flip with me there, Galatians chapter 5. Verse 1, and this is directly after, if you guys want to look into to it um, a little more, in Galatians 4, 21 to 31, basically um, what Paul's doing is he's explaining how we're under grace. We're a seed from the free woman, Sarah, not a seed from the bond woman, Hagar. Okay, so he's talking about the law specifically. All right, and then right after that, he says in Galatians chapter 5, verse 1, Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free, and do not be entangled again with a yoke of bondage, the yoke of the law. Good, he says in verse 2, Indeed, I, Paul, say to you that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. And I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. This is your heart behind circumcision. This isn't, if any man's been circumcised, you have to keep the whole law. This is why you're being circumcised, just to clarify. Verse 4, he says, You have become estranged from Christ. You who attempt to be justified by law, you have fallen from grace. For we, through the Spirit, eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. He says, don't be entangled with the yoke of bondage. Jesus says, my yoke is easy, my burden is light. Because everybody that's listening to this call of repentance is thinking, this yoke is heavy, 613 laws, I've broken 533 of them. Like I have a lot to repent of. No, come to me. No, this isn't the yoke. I'm not talking about the yoke of the law. I'm talking about the yoke of grace. I'm talking about getting yoked up next to me and I'm gonna carry you through this 
burden. Don't return to this yoke of bondage. That's not what I'm asking you to do. If you're returning to it, then you don't understand my heart for you. It's not about your own self-righteousness, your own satisfaction and fulfillment that you gain from keeping your man-made law that I never asked you to do to begin with. It's the satisfaction and fulfillment that you gain from resting in me. It's the righteousness that you receive by by my blood and not by your works. It's not your self-righteousness. It's the righteousness that comes through faith. Picking it back up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 2. I'm just going to reread this. And when the Pharisees saw it, they said to him, Look, your disciples are doing what is not lawful to do on the Sabbath. The Pharisees are pointing the finger and falsely accusing the disciples. Brings me to my second point. Legalism leads to judgment. Legalism leads to judgment. What are the Pharisees doing in the grain field anyways? You can almost guarantee that they're more than 3,000 feet away from their home. If it was one Pharisee and it was his grain field, maybe. But these grain fields were pretty large. It's almost a guarantee that these Pharisees are breaking their man-made law in fulfilling this Sabbath. But that tends to be the nature of the Pharisee, right? They're judgmental and hypocritical. While they're practicing a similar thing, they're pointing the finger and putting the attention on someone else. Jesus addresses that heart in Matthew chapter 7. We talked about it when we went through the Sermon on the Mount, but just a little reminder, because this is how ridiculous the Pharisees look right now. In Matthew chapter 7, verse 1, he says, Judge not that you be not judged, for with that judgment you judge you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider the plank in your own eye? Or can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye and look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye. And then when you see, will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. If I was standing up here with a plank sticking out of my head and pointing at specks, hey, you got a little, you got a little sleepy eye. Hey, you might want to get that. You'd be like, are you serious? Have you looked at yourself? You got a plank sticking out of your head. It's absolutely ridiculous, right? But that's the nature of the heart of a Pharisee. They're saying, hey, they're doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. They're not even doing what's unlawful on the Sabbath. But as they're pointing the finger, they got the plank sticking out of their head. And Jesus is going to address that. But we can fall into this as well, right? We all got a little Pharisee inside of us. We judge people. We criticize people. And this is the heart. Grace It always looks better on me, but judgment, it looks better on you. I look better covered in grace, but you, judgment. You look better with judgment in my eyes. Grace, it fits me better. It's hypocrisy. Consistent judgment of others is a a red flag and an indicator that you're missing something in your understanding of the heart of God. He says it like this, Paul, when he addresses judgment in Romans chapter 2. Many of you are familiar with the verse. He says this. Romans chapter 2, 
Verse 1, therefore, you are inexcusable, O man, whoever you are who judge, for whenever you judge another and condemn yourself, for you who judge practice the same things. What? The thing that I'm judging them for is the very thing that I practice. The very thing that I'm criticizing in someone else is the very thing that I struggle with. I hate it in them because I hate it in myself. You ever think that God might bring that person in your life to expose something in you? Because that's what's happening with the Pharisees. You're doing what's unlawful, but they're doing what's unlawful according to their man-made traditions and beliefs. In Galatians chapter 6, verse 1 and 2, it says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. You ever think that God brings in people into your life that struggle with the same sins that you would recognize it in yourself and you would take them just as Jesus takes us and help bear their burden to overcome the sin? You see it in them, you criticize it, you judge it. Maybe God's showing you so that you'll help them overcome it instead of just talk badly about them. Our faith, it's not about judging people, it's about loving people. And Jesus will get to that in a moment. Picking it back up in Matthew chapter 12, verse 3. I love this. But he said to them, have you not read? Just stop right there before we get into what he's talking about. But he said to them, the Pharisees, have you not read? Pharisees, quit comparing yourself to flawed men and get back to comparing yourself to the word of God. Have you not read? Jesus points them right back to the word. He says, this is what the word says. And so often we can find ourselves looking at other people, criticizing and judging other people. At least I'm not as bad as him. At least I didn't do what she did. I'm better than him. I'm better than her. But Jesus says, no, forget all of that. You're not to compare yourself to each other. You're to compare yourself to the word. Have you not read that you're a sinner too? That you struggle too? That you got issues that need to be overcome as well? See, it's really easy to focus on other people's flaws and criticize them and judge them. When we focus so hard on finding flaws in other people, you know what's going to happen? We're going to find them. We will. Yeah. Every single one of us. We got flaws. If you look hard enough, if you take the microscope, you examine every person's life in here, you're going to find flaws. But you know what's going to happen? You focus so much on the flaws of someone else, you're going to rob yourself from your own spiritual growth. Because God's not asking us, focus on everybody else's sins. He's saying, focus on me, focus on my word. If you focus on me and my word, that's how you're going to experience growth. Now, I'm not saying that we're not supposed to call each other out and speak the truth in love. Truth in love. In Matthew 18, we'll get into that later, um, probably months from now, but, um, <laughs> but, but there is a reality that we are supposed to, judgment begins in the house of the Lord, and we're supposed to call each other out on sin in love. But we can get so focused on pointing out the little flaws in everyone else that we're not focused back on the word. See, we should be focused on correcting ourselves more than we are the person to the right or to the left of us. Then he says, in these next verses, before I say what he says, have you not read? 
I love Jesus. He's so cool. What he does in this passage is just beyond me. I love it. Um, how they didn't get it, I don't know. Maybe they got it. Not sure. They didn't respond to it well. But what Jesus is going to do here is he's not going to uh, elaborate and give them understanding of the heart behind the Sabbath. He's going to give them, teach them the nature of himself. And watch what he does here. Have you not read what David did when he was hungry, he and those who were with him? How he entered the house of God and ate the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, nor of those who were with him, but only for the priest. He's talking about this story back in 1 Samuel chapter uh, 21. If you want to write it down, you can reread the story. It's when David, he's running from King Saul, and he doesn't have food. He doesn't have... Um, bread to, to feed himself or his men. So he goes to the temple and he asks, hey, can, it, can I eat the bread? And the priest's like, all I got is the show bread. And he's like, all right, I'll take it. We're going to starve to get to death if we don't eat this bread. Now, David was the most highly revered king in all of Jewish history. So they love King David, but Jesus points out that, hey, D David, he, he did this act when there was no more bread, when there was no more food, he ate the showbread. David, the man after God's own heart, broke the law for the sake of, of love, but for himself and for others. David showed us in 1 Samuel Chapter 21, that love is greater than the law. Love is the fulfillment of the law. Jesus, the man that represents God's heart, does a similar thing, not the same thing. He doesn't even break the law. He just brings the disciples into a grain field so that they can eat from the grain. And this is completely lawful. This man, after God's own heart, the Pharisees, they point the finger at him and his disciples. Jesus right here is implying that he's the rightful king. He's speaking of King David, right? The son of David. He's speaking of the king that they revered so much. He's saying, I am the king. Now follow me. Look at these other things that he says here. When he's speaking of the showbread, what was the showbread reserved for? It was reserved for the priests, right? If you flip with me to Leviticus chapter 24... Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8. Leviticus chapter 24, verse 8 and 9. He says, Every Sabbath he shall set in order before the Lord continually, being taken from the children of Israel by an everlasting covenant. And it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place. For it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire by a perpetual statute. What's Jesus implying here? Why is he speaking of the story with David and the showbread? Jesus is the high priest. We see that in Hebrews chapter 4. Jesus is the high priest. He's the king of kings. He's also the high priest. He can rightfully even eat the showbread. Not only is it lawful for him and his disciples to eat the grain, he could eat the showbread if you wanted that sitting in the temple. And just as we see here in Leviticus chapter 24, Aaron and his sons were able to eat the showbread. The disciples are the sons of God. Jesus is God. The disciples are his sons. They could lawfully eat the showbread because this was a spiritual 
thing. Then he says, in Matthew chapter 12, verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath, the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? What is he speaking of? You weren't to work on the Sabbath, but the priests are doing most of their work on the Sabbath. They're working every single Sabbath. So he's saying, they're defi- you don't understand the Sabbath. Okay? Yes, it was for rest for the people. God instituted it for man so that they could have rest. But the priests, they work every single Sabbath. Verse 6, it says, Yet I say to you that in this place there is one greater than the temple. Not only can I rightfully eat the showbread, right now there's one in front of you that's greater than the temple. Jesus is claiming to be God right here. I love it. He's like, I'm the king. I'm the king of kings. I'm the high priest of high priests. I'm God. I'm greater than the temple. Oh, I bet this stirred them up. I bet this got them riled up because why? They love the temple, right? The temple, it's this majestic, beautiful thing. Now we know that they misuse the temple. They turn it into a business. People are walking through it. But Jesus is saying, I'm greater than the temple. I'm the one for whom the temple was built. Then he says this in verse 7. But if you had known what this means, I desire mercy and not sacrifice, you would, have, you would not have condemned the guiltless. What is he doing here? He's quoting a prophet. He's specifically quoting Hosea chapter 6, verse 6. God desires mercy and not sacrifice. What is Jesus saying here? I'm greater than King David. I'm the king of kings. I'm the high priest of high priests. And I'm a prophet. Those are the three um, positions of authority in ancient Israel. The king, the priest, and the prophet. And there was no one that fulfilled all three of those positions of authority. Jesus was the only one. He's the Messiah. He's God in the flesh. I fulfill every position of authority. I know God's heart. I know his heart about the Sabbath. Let me teach you a little something about God. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. See, in this context, he's speaking of of character. See, they're doing all the external things, but he refers to them as whitewashed tombs, right? On the outside, you look good. You're doing a lot of um, uh, you're, you're, you're accomplishing a lot of the law in your flesh. You look spiritual on the outside, but on the inside, you're dead inside. Your, your hearts are dead. Your character is dead. So the mercy he's speaking of is a character quality and the sacrifice speaks of action. Mercy is a characteristic of love and sacrifice is an action used to accomplish the law. Brings me to my third point. Faith works through love, not law. Faith works through love, not law. See, God is more concerned about our hearts than our works. If we're doing works with the wrong hearts, then he doesn't want our works. He would rather have our hearts than our works will follow. He doesn't want us just doing these things and fulfilling these things in our flesh. Yeah, do your task list, but when I'm not finished, I'm irritable. No, no. No, that's not what our faith is to look like. Our faith is to look like love, not law. 
He says it like this in Galatians chapter 5, verse 6. He says, faith, exactly this, faith working through love. Faith is to work through love. Faith works, yes, but if faith is not working through love, then it's not really working. If faith is just working and it's not connected to love, then it's not really working. Paul says it like this in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. If you'd flip with me there real quick. 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 3. The whole chapter is about love. Love is the greatest gift. He says this. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. What is he speaking of? He's speaking of sacrifice. Speaking of sacrificing goods, he's speaking of sacrificing his own body. If I'm martyred for the sake of the gospel, but I'm not doing it with love, then it profits me nothing. I could sacrifice everything, even my very life, but if it's not rooted in a heart of love, then it's in vain. Jesus, he's calling out the Pharisees for their lack of love, their lack of mercy. He desires that we have a a deep-rooted love and compassion for people. They're pointing the finger at the disciples when the disciples are just hungry They've been trying to keep up with Jesus' pace. Come on. Jesus was weary often. He brought the disciples into a place where they were weary and hungry often. Doing ministry with Jesus was rough. They continued to follow him. It was a tough thing. That's why he says narrow is the way and difficult is the path. That wasn't a joke. He was actually walking them through that. He's like, have compassion on these guys. They're working so hard to advance the kingdom of heaven, but you're so stuck in your legalism and your judgment that you're so blind that you can't see it. James chapter 2, verse 13, James writes, Mercy triumphs over judgment. Mercy is greater than judgment. You're missing it. You're missing God's heart. Yes, God is a judge, but he's a merciful judge. He's just, but he's gracious. You're missing those Two key words. He's merciful and gracious as he's revealed himself to Moses in Exodus chapter 34. Yeah, he's a judge, but we got to remember the kind of judge that he is. Yes, he's just, but he's also merciful. He's a loving God. Then he says this in closing, Matthew chapter 12, verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Oh, I love this. Man, this would have got them stirred up, right? They're like, are you serious? Uh, You're Lord of the Sabbath. You're greater than the temple, now you're Lord of the Sabbath. And these are some of the things that they use against him, specifically the temple thing. He brings up the temple quite a bit. In his trial, right? He's Lord of the Sabbath. There's two parts to this. He's saying, I'm the Lord of the Sabbath because I created the Sabbath. I'm the one that instituted the Sabbath. Jesus is fully man, but he's also fully God. He instituted the Sabbath and he instituted it out of what? Mercy and compassion for the people. They were working 430 years straight in slavery in Egypt. 
He, inst- he created the Sabbath to give the people rest. It was all about love and compassion, not to bring a burden on them, but to relieve the burden. It was the complete opposite thing that the Pharisees were doing with the Sabbath. Then he says, okay, not only for the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath, Jesus is the Sabbath. Jesus is the Sabbath. In Matthew eleven twenty eight, he says, Come to me, all you labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest that we find, our Sabbath, is in Christ. This is the fourth point, and I'll clarify. Jesus is our rest. Jesus is our rest. In Hebrews chapter 4, I talked about this a little bit last week. In Hebrews chapter 4, we see this... Um, there's a lot to this section, but he talks about this, this rest that is promised for God's people. There's both an eternal rest, but there's also a rest that we can gain, that we can abide in while we're here on earth. Let's just skip to Hebrews chapter 4, verse 9. He says, There remains therefore a rest for the people of God, for he who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his, his rest. He is our rest. Jesus is our rest. He is our Sabbath. Those, look what he says again in verse 10. He who has entered his rest has himself also ceased from his works as God did from his. Your redemption is no longer something that you strive for. When we understand that Jesus is our rest, it's something that's already been accomplished. Remember what Jesus said when he was on the cross. It is finished. The work's complete. I did the work. I did the work because you couldn't. Now, that doesn't mean that faith without works is dead. We know that in James chapter 2. But it's the heart behind the works. I'm not working for my salvation. I'm not working for my redemption. The redemption, the salvation, the work is completed. Now, you can have your Sabbath daily. You can find your rest in me daily. It's not just a day of the week. It's something that you can have every single moment of every single day if Christ is living in you. He is our rest. Jesus is our rest. We can have rest all the time. That doesn't mean that we're not going to get physically weary. Now, if you're tired right now, some of you are nodding off. won't call you out. (laughs) Now you woke up. You're like, why are people laughing? They're laughing at you. (laughs) That doesn't mean that we're not going to get tired, that we're not going to get wearisome. Jesus himself was weary. He got tired. We see it in John chapter 4, Matthew chapter 4, Luke chapter 4. Luke, sorry, Luke said, Matthew said, John said that Jesus got weary. He got tired. He got physically tired. But we can still be spiritually strong even when we're physically tired. It doesn't mean you're never going to be weary. Let us not grow weary while doing good. Okay, yeah, we're going to grow weary physically, but we can remain strong spiritually if we find our rest in Jesus. We get weary, we get irritated, we get tiresome when we're trying to fulfill this thing in our flesh. We're trying to fulfill our man-made task list, to-do list, but we're not finding our rest in Jesus. If we find our rest in Jesus at the end of the day, we can say, I'm resting in his completed work because this task list, it means very it means barely anything compared to the work that Christ has done in my life. I can rest in him. He completed the work. 
Now, with that, what will your heart's response be to the finished work of Christ? should be a heart of love and compassion, just as he's teaching the Pharisees. Dude, mercy is greater than judgment. He desires mercy and not sacrifice. What I want for you, the work that I want you to accomplish is simple. I'm going to take all of those, all of those 613 laws and I'm con- going to condense it down to two. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself. That's the byproduct of his finished work. We love God and love people. Keep it simple. Don't worry about the to-do list, the task list. If you don't accomplish your task list of the day, just put two things on the top of your everybody this week for the rest of your lives. Let's do this. Your task list, the first two things it should say on there, love God, love people, everything else after that falls. Whatever. If I'm doing those two things, the task list doesn't matter. I want you to have compassion. I want you to have mercy on my people. Let's pray. Jesus, we, um, we thank you for your finished work, God. We know we're a work in progress, but we know that the work of salvation, um, the redemption story, it's, it's ours for the taking, God, and we thank you for that finished work. Lord, I pray that as we walk with you, as we live for you, Lord, we would rest in that finished work. We wouldn't get irritated or caught up with the mentality that we have to work for something. God, you already did it, Lord, and I pray that we would work from something, work from the love and compassion that you had on us. Jesus, I pray that our response to your finished work would be love for you and love for others. God, give us those hearts of mercy. Give us those hearts of compassion, regardless of what we accomplish or how productive we are. If we're not doing it with love, then it means nothing. God, so I pray that you would help us because we cannot love without you. You define what love is. You are love, and by the power of your Holy Spirit, only by the power of your Holy Spirit can we walk in love, Lord. So we love you because you first loved us. Thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.